Welcome to the Rise, Teach, Learn podcast. I am Dr. Chiara Ferrari, Director of Faculty Development at Chico State, and we are happy to make this resource available to our campus community and beyond. The podcast is hosted by Dr. Jamie Lynn Gunderson, and she will engage in timely conversations with faculty, staff, and students, and give you a taste of the Chico experience. Subscribe to our podcast and explore the many resources available on our website. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to Rise, Teach, Learn. I am your host, Jamie Gunderson. In this episode, we explore the impacts of language on our professional and learning environments. And I'd like to start by welcoming this episode's guests, Dr. Catherine Lemmy and Dr. Breton Varga. Catherine and Breton, I'm gonna just give you a little bit of a moment to introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know your voice. So Catherine, we'll start with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us, Jamie. My name is Catherine Lemmy. I am an assistant professor of education at Chico State. I teach our literacy development class to our credential candidates, as well as um, our access and equity course to our pre-credential students. Um, really excited to be here. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you, Jamie, for having me. My name is Breton Varga. I'm an assistant professor of history and social science, and I work in the School of Education with our teacher candidates who are taking classes on how to teach social studies education. I work in both the multiple subject and the single subject programs, and it is truly an honor to be here and hang out with you both. I'm a big fan of both of you, so thank you for thank you for putting this together. Yeah, I'm super excited to have Breton and Catherine because they are colleagues of mine in the School of Education. So we're doing all good things for future teachers. Um, and Catherine and Breton have really been leaders in our department on some of our work around our mission and vision. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But one of the things I wanted to have Breton and Catherine on to talk about was specifically how we use language to talk about identity. And so, Catherine, I was wondering if you could talk us through positionality statement. Sure. Thanks. So positionality statements are something that scholars and researchers sometimes write in their papers when they're doing work that discusses identity or really any work um, that involves people. Right. So social science research. Um, and the reason is because, you know, we want to tell people who we are in relationship to that work. Um, there's a lot of different reasons for that. So one of the reasons we give a positionality statement is to acknowledge our own knowledge gaps, right? Um, and so I'll, I'll just give you an example of a positionality, a really brief positionality statement for myself. Um, so that you know what I'm talking about when I say positionality statement. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about my identity and who I am. So I am a cisgender white middle-class woman. I am from Memphis, Tennessee, and um, I'm from a family where both of my parents went to college. And so these aspects of my identity really matter when I'm teaching and writing and um, talking with my students about identity, about race and how that um, matters in education about um, socioeconomic status and how that influences people's educational experiences. So it's important for us to state who we are so that, um, you know, it, we can be clear that we have 
knowledge based on our own experiences, but there's a lot of, there are a lot of experiences that we talk about that we have not had. So I'll let you and Breton also kind of give your positionality statements as well. Thank you, Catherine. So again, I'm Breton Varga and I identify as a cisgenero heterosexual white male. And just to build a little bit on why we want and why we are advocates in the School of Education for working with identity is when we think about fostering critical consciousness and thinking critically about the world, really the work begins with us as thinkers and as members of society looking inward and looking at our own identities, thinking about how we want to be seen in the world, thinking about how we are seen in the world. And once that work begins, then we can start to look at how other people are seen and want to be seen in the world, which ultimately gives us a foundation for which we can build and start working towards critical consciousness. So I want to embed this in my teaching, but I have to tell you, I'm a little nervous as to what to include in my own positionality statement. So can you help me figure out, do I just decide to include components of who I am that I think fit um, in that context? Or or how do I go about selecting which variables of my identity do I display in my positionality statement? Thank you, Jamie, for that question. And I think something to, to consider is that there is no pre-described way of approaching this. There is no list, there's no checklist that needs to be ticked off in terms of what you are sharing in terms of your own identity. Um, we talk a lot in our classes about our teachers maintaining this sense of agency and our students maintaining a sense of agency. Identity work and agency is of the utmost importance that we keep those two ideas in very close conversation, meaning that my identities are something that I have the power to share or not to share. And that can always be in flux. It can always be changing. So when you think about a positionality statement, I would encourage someone to think about what are some identity markers that you feel comfortable with sharing and start from there, start from your comfort level of what you would like people to know about you. And then you can get a better sense of how to move forward if you feel like developing that or if not. So it's really all about the person and how they share their own identity. I really like that. So it makes me feel very comfortable with sharing my positionality statement, which is... I am a white, first-gen woman from Las Vegas, Nevada. So I want to throw it back to Catherine. Uh, so we talked about what a positionality statement is. We talked about how important it is to identity. But can we talk about the why behind it? Like, why is this so impactful in our teaching? It's a great question. I think, um, first of all, I just want to say, you know, I really don't consider myself an expert in this at all. I'm a learner. And I consider myself a learner in the early stages. And I'm just trying to learn about these issues because I don't want to harm, you know, anyone through the work that I do. So I'm trying to be an anti-racist educator um, who's aware of these things. So I don't feel like I have, you know, the best answer to any of this. But I'll tell you my perspective. Breton can add to it. And, um, you know, our students have so much knowledge about this as well. So I encourage anyone who's listening to kind of tap into your students' knowledge of these issues. So why do we do this? Researchers often write positionality statements to acknowledge the limitations of their research 
and to provide transparency on their relationship to um, the people that they're researching. So as teachers, we kind of do this for similar reasons, right? We want to acknowledge the limitations of our knowledge and our perspectives that we're sharing with our students. Um, we also want to provide transparency about you know, our relationship to the content um, that we're teaching. So for example, um, you know, as a woman who, you know, identifies as white, I have experienced privilege based on how people view my race. And I have also experienced some um, level of oppression based on my gender. So I have these two different experiences um, and just acknowledging those aspects of my identity is important for, for students to know um, because it's important for them to understand the both the limitations of my perspectives and also maybe some affordances of my perspectives that I can offer based on my identity. So a couple of things I would like to add to the conversation. And I think uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's concept of intersectionality is also really important to this conversation. And what Dr. Crenshaw gets at with this concept is that people's identities are often overlapping and they're intersecting. And within those intersections, injustice and oppression and racism is often compounded. It's not so much about stacking up identity markers that have been racialized as much as it is a way for us to think about the complexity of how racism and injustice is felt and registered and articulated and responded to by different people through their identities. In one of in our 302 class, Access and Equity, one of the main projects that we ask students to do is called the iSearch paper, which the I can stand for identity, identity search. We ask our students to look inward at how their identities impact how they have lived in society. And there have been multiple occasions where I have students who are very forthcoming in how they identify, they identify as being white, and that they don't have a lot to talk about in this paper because identities and identity work is not something that they ever had to think about throughout their, their life experiences. And I think that gets to this idea of privilege where certain people are forced to confront their identities on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, minute to minute identity plays a huge role in how they navigate the world. And so within this you know, relationship of, of power and privilege and identity and intersectionality, I think this work is of the utmost importance for us and our students to get to, to know each other better. If we're going to work towards a world that is rooted in justice and hates less and is about love and joy and respect, it really starts with us having the tools to get to know one another on a more complex level. Brent and Catherine, as you guys are talking and we're talking about this idea of identities and sharing our positionalities and, and you know, the, the complexities of, of privilege and discrimination and all of these things that are built into our identities, it makes me think of, um, and, and I'm just going to call attention to, I don't know if you've read Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown, it's just one of her newer um, books, but she talks about this idea of um, belonging versus fitting in. And I think when we have these discussions in our classrooms, we really get to know all of the facets of a person and how they present within that context. We we start to 
to cross that bridge between students fitting in in a classroom space and students actually belonging to a classroom community. I love um, bringing this, this into our classrooms. Can you talk to me a little bit about some ideas you have for embedding this in our courses? We kind of brainstormed a bunch of examples earlier when we talked, Jamie, but one I think that is a nice starting point for people. Um, if, you know, if you're just starting out in this work and in thinking about um, identity, is thinking about gender and our language around gender. And so quite often, especially in education spaces, you know, we work with K-12 educators in the School of Ed. We say things like, or we hear things like, good morning, boys and girls. Um, and that language places students into a gender binary um, when in fact we know that there are more than two genders, boys and girls are not the only genders that exist. Um, and so a lot of teachers have shifted away from saying boys and girls to saying many different, um, you know, gender neutral greetings to students. For example, you know, good morning, wildcats, or good morning, everyone, or good morning, children. There might be some more, more creative ones out there that teachers have come up with, but shifting away from gender binaries, um, shifting away from, you know, sorting students into groups based on um, gender, and um, and being careful about students' pronouns. Um, so asking students if they would like to share their pronouns and being careful about identifying them by the correct pronouns um, is something that we try, we try to do um, in our classrooms. So it's just one example of how language can foster a sense of inclusion and belonging in our classrooms. Um, and, or, or it can do the opposite, right? Depending on how we talk about gender. I want to pivot and talk a little bit more about what this means with our colleagues. So can you tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing in leading our department with recrafting the language of our mission and vision? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so something I want to underscore throughout this whole conversation is that language matters. And Catherine gave a few examples of what it could look like for our teachers and students. And something that's an important part of this conversation is the historical context of how certain terms have been used or deployed over the course and the meanings there within have been um, used over time. Um, I think even the term mission and vision statement is something that we are working to undo because of the the way that chico state is located in the state of california and the very insidious and problematic history the state of california has with the mission system that was established that did terrible things to indigenous communities i think that it's important to for us when we think about language how have terms you know getting at that historicalness within the terms i was just in a meeting with you both actually if a couple hours ago well an hour ago yep. <laughs> and something that was brought up by one of our colleagues was there was this question going around about, is there a master list? Is there a master schedule? And as somebody who tries to think in a critical conscious way about language, my ideas go to the problematic nature of that word master, um, considering the context of the history of, of the U.S. society built on slavery and built on dispossession of indigenous communities and land theft. So I think it's imploring your colleagues to just be mindful of what they say, um, be open to, 
you know, learning to grow. Nobody is perfect. We're all humans. We are infallible. We're imperfect. We're always works in progresses. And I think, you know, fostering this sense of community to where we can approach our colleagues when something is said that is maybe problematic, how can we turn that into a learning opportunity so that there's growth that happens? Because ultimately this work is not about pointing the finger at people saying, you, Jamie, or you, Catherine, said this, this is wrong, as much as it is, hey, there are more responsible, more considerate ways to say what it is you're trying to say. Here's a couple of examples moving forward. Brett, and I really love that you um, brought up this idea of being mindful. And in my work and in my uh, research for preparing for this podcast, I listened to, um, it was a really great podcast on microaggressions. But what I learned is it's not just about what you say. Um, it's not just about language. There's also a component of action that's a piece of this work. And so I wanted to, you know, after I listened to that podcast, I reflected on my actions in my in our startup meeting at the beginning of the year. We had set aside time as a department to do some of this mission and vision work, or I'm sorry, would it be best to call it vision work? Vision and purpose is, I believe, the two things that we are using. Purpose. Right. Purpose and yeah, purpose and vision or vision. Okay. Awesome. So when we set aside time in our our meeting to do the vision and purpose work, I unfortunately got had another uh, situation with a student. I had to step away from that where we were all engaging in discussion around what we wanted our vision and purpose to be. And after listening to that podcast, I understood. I kind of like thought a little bit about how me stepping away in that moment, even though my intent was to help a student, that might have been a micro invalidation to my department on how important this purpose and vision work is. And so when you talk about mindfulness, I, I think it's on, you know, us as colleagues to be thinking about not only how do our words impact you know, our departments, but how do our actions impact that? And, you know, what do we do when there are mistakes that are made? So being that that was my reflection and that my big aha moment, I wanted to talk about, you know, okay, now we've identified a mistake was made. Where do we go from here? And how do we, how do we work to, to evolve in that moment? Thank you for that, Jamie. And, you know, I can't help but think about um, this wonderful book by Maria Puig de la Bellacasa called Matters of Care, Speculative Ethics in More Than Human Worlds. And what, what is talked about in that book is, like, like you mentioned, it's, it's having this thoughtfulness, it's having this mindfulness that our actions matter, our words matter. Even the fact that you brought up that instance and that you are thinking about it, I think speaks volumes to how you approach ethics in this work and how you approach ethics within the community building that was going on during that, that time together. Um, you know, when I think about microaggressions, I also think too about the, the action component that we want our teachers to take when they are hearing microaggressions that are happening in classrooms or they're, that are happening in the workplaces. And I think, you know, Ibram X. Kendi would certainly say one of the most powerful ways to interrupt racism and interrupt injustice is by calling it out in a way that is productive. It's naming it. It's being forthcoming with, hey, something didn't feel right about what you said. Here's a different way that we can go about talking about something. 
And so for the teachers out there listening, I think when you do come across microaggressions, it's to step in in a way that says, hey, something didn't feel right about what I just heard. And how can we say that differently? Or how can we help our colleagues and peers become attuned to how different people are understanding what is being said? Ultimately working towards that thoughtfulness and mindfulness that you were just mentioning. Catherine, I want to throw it to you because you and I had great conversations about what do we do when we're the teacher and we've committed this microaggression and how do we evolve in that moment? So do you, you have some great nuggets to share? Yes, I have so many examples of times when I have done, um, you know, said things and then realized that they were microaggressions. And so this is one reason why I'm trying constantly trying to learn more about um, microaggressions to make sure not to continue. And so, um, you know, one of the things my students taught me many years ago is this idea of calling someone in. And so um, often my students have called me in to this conversation about um, language and identity and kind of given me new perspectives on um, on language that and I and I thank them. Right. Um, so, you know, I think we can call things out, we can call people into a, to a conversation. One example that I can share is that I had a transgender student in the past, and I was continually misgendering the student. I was using the incorrect pronouns for the student. Um, and the student corrected me several times, um, more, than, more than once. And so, um, you know, I apologized to the student after class, and the student said, you know, I just want you to get my pronouns right. Um, and so what I did was in that moment, you know, I just made, I started Googling it and I made an effort to come up with a strategy to make sure that I'd never said the wrong pronouns again. Right. So I, um, a couple of suggestions that I found just through reading was to practice it in the mirror and, and to make a plan within your lesson plan for when you are going to say the student's name and pronouns intentionally, um, you know, maybe three different times so that you've gotten that practice in class of saying the correct pronouns. And so that's what I did. I just made a real intentional effort to not um, misgender the student again. Um, there's also, you know, an apology process that, um, that often happens. So, you know, when, when, if you, say something that you realize or someone tells you is a microaggression, um, you can start by saying, thank you. Thank you for telling me. Um, I needed to know that. Um, this is something that my mom says to me a lot when I, you know, call her out for things. She just says, thank you. I needed to know that. Um, you can also say, it's not okay that I said that and I'm sorry. So straight up apologize. Um, and you can even describe why it's not okay. Um, and you can make changes, right? You can either tell the person, this is what I'll do differently in the future, or you can just do those things differently and make a plan to change your language or your behavior in the future so that it doesn't happen again. Um, it's important not to say things like, I'm sorry if, right? I'm sorry if you were offended. I'm sorry if I offended you. The if places the onus on the person whose identity was, you know, microaggressed. Um, and so you want to really take responsibility by saying, it's just not okay that I said that. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's also just really important to 
be in conversation where we can share these things, you know, and I think saying thank you will open up space for people to, to let you know again in the future if there's anything you say um, that they notice. And there you have it, folks. Today we explored the impacts and importance of language in our learning and professional spaces. I'd like to thank Drs. Katherine Lemmy and Bretton Varga for their contributions to this episode. Please don't forget that you can access previous episodes of Rise Teach Learn as well as all of the resources associated with this and other episodes of our podcast through our FDEV podcast webpage. A big thank you to you for listening and until next time, we got this Wildcats. We would like to thank the Machupta on whose traditional lands this recording is taking place. Without their support and continued positive presence in our community, we would be unable to forward the cultural and educational work that is at the heart of this recording.